Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. I want to talk uh, a little this morning about uh, a, a guy in the Bible that you have likely heard about. Uh, a guy named David. Uh, And even if you have not spent a whole lot of time around the church, uh, you've probably heard of David in the classic David and Goliath story, right? This has become a a cultural understanding, if not a biblical one. When we say David and Goliath today, uh, we typically mean, uh, we hear it in sports world, we hear it in the corporate world, we typically mean that there is some team or organization or person who is so much smaller than who they're going up against. They don't have the resources. They don't have the experience. Uh, they don't have the, the abilities or track record of uh, the, the organization or team that they're going up against, right? This, this big Goliath over here has all the resources and all the experience and all of the abilities And this little upstart is going to try to take them down. And it makes for a great story. Uh, We love those stories. Most of us uh, love to root for the underdogs and the rest of you are heartless Yankee fans. And um, sorry, I said that out loud. Um, And uh, and we we love that story. It's uh, it's not entirely uh, how the biblical account really goes. Uh, David uh, may have been significantly younger and smaller and had less war experience than Goliath. Uh, but uh, he knew how to use the weapon in his hand. Like we think of Goliath with, with big armor and a big sword. Um, and, uh, and because we're Americans, we really like those ideas. And David has this little tiny sling. Um, but, but David had used his sling to kill before. He knew exactly what ammunition his weapon needed. He knew how to use it. He knew where to stand to use it appropriately. Uh, and when he had uh, killed Goliath with his sling, uh, a stone to the head, Um, He then ran up uh, and cut off Goliath's head and held it up like a trophy and everybody cheered. And that's a little different than the soft and squishy shepherd that we learn about in Sunday school. Other things that we may have missed about the David story. Uh, David, by the time he's facing Goliath, had already been anointed king by the prophet Samuel. Uh, I'm going to use two S names in this story a lot. There is Samuel and there is Saul. Okay, so Samuel and Saul, different people. Samuel is a prophet who went to King Saul and said, hey, God is done with you and he's moving you aside and he is going to pick a new king. And then Samuel went out and he anointed David to be this new king, which sounds great, but is exceedingly awkward when you're anointed to be the next king of anything, in this case, Israel, but there is still a king of Israel who has no intention of getting out of the way. Uh, He likes being king. He would like to stay being king. Uh, He has a son that he would like to hand off the kingdom to one day named Jonathan. And so King Saul has no plans of getting out of the way. Samuel has told him, God is moving you out and he's anointed David, but the only people who know that are Samuel and David and David's family. And so... Uh, David emerges as this hero with this anointing already on him. Uh, Later, he uh, does go on to be a king. Uh, He does go on to be a mighty warrior who kills uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, who people, as we'll read, sing war songs about, that that he has killed his 10,000s, which is 
likely an exaggeration, but, uh, but he becomes this mighty warrior. Also, uh, he becomes one of the most famous poets and songwriters in all of human history, uh, penning most of what makes up the book of Psalms. And uh, just to uh, top it all off, uh, he also becomes the architect of uh, Solomon's temple. He doesn't end up building it. His son Solomon does. But it's one of the wonders of the ancient world. So David is a warrior, shepherd, king, architect, musician, and he's not remembered in biblical history primarily for any of those things. In uh, the book of Acts in the New Testament, as the early church is getting started, uh, an early preacher named Paul is recounting for people the story that we uh, have up to uh, this, this far. So basically, in, in one page, he's, he's trying to cover the rest of this, okay? And he mentions David, because David is such a key figure in the story. And so in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, uh, Paul recounts David's story this way. He said, but God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. In biblical history, David is remembered as a man after God's heart. Uh, when I grew up in church, for whatever reason, uh, I learned the King James phrasing on this, that David is a man after God's own heart. And some of you may have heard it that way as well. And in that phrasing, I uh, imagined it or understood it to be talking about pursuit, that David was going after God's heart. He would go after uh, God. He was pursuing him and, and that we should as well. And I, I think all of that is, is good and true. To, to really grasp this concept of what is meant by being a man after, uh, day, or man after God's own heart, I don't know that going after is, is maybe the best capture. Uh, I think to best capture the thought patterned after or modeled after would maybe be more accurate, that David is a man whose heart is patterned after or molded after, modeled after God's, that he has a heart like God's. Last week, we started talking about God's hearts and we talked about uh, God's goodness. We asked the question, okay, so 80% of people in America say there's some sort of higher power, some sort of God. The question then is, is that God good? Because if, if most of us believe there is a God, whether we believe that God is good and for us or bad, negative, in some way apathetic or against us is going to greatly determine how we engage with that God how we engage with each other, how we engage with the person in the mirror. So is God good? And, and we saw uh, many times, and we're only looking at a fraction of them uh, in scripture where God is described as good, where over and over again, uh, God's uh, mentioned as, as being a good God and having good characteristics and a good heart. Okay, so if God is good... And we, I'm just going to make an assumption that most of us would like to be good or do good. And I, I, don't, I don't mean like Sunday school kid good, like be a good little boy. I'm, I mean, like we, we want to have a good impact on the world around us, on our relationships. We, we want to do good things. We want to have a good heart. So wouldn't it make sense that if we want to do good, be good, have a good heart, a good impact, that we would then 
model or pattern our hearts after God's, that we would also want to have a heart like God's. So uh, I want to look at David's story, a man whose heart was like God's, and see what we can learn about uh, how that comes out in his life. Before we get to David's story, though, and we are going to be in 1 Samuel, for those who want to follow along, uh, David, and we're going to look at David and Saul's story together, specifically David and King Saul. And uh, that's the last half, basically, of 1 Samuel. So we'll do a lot of skipping around, only cover a little bit, but I encourage you to read the whole story at the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, David has a fascinating story. There's a reason uh, so many stories are told about him and why stories like David and Goliath last. But before we dive into David's story, I want to look at what does it mean that we would pattern our hearts after God? How would we go about doing that? What are the things that are necessary to pattern our heart after God's heart? How do we establish that kind of patterning And I I want to be a little bit careful because patterns can sometimes make us think of formulas. Like if I just learn that A, God, plus B, situation equals C, outcome, then I will know uh, the pattern, excuse me, and I can get it all uh, figured out. I'll have all the right answers. And that's not actually what we're talking about at all. So the very first thing that we would need to do to be able to pattern our heart after God's own heart is to know God's heart. We have to know the hearts that we are trying to pattern after. And and again, God is not a formula to be figured out. He's not a textbook to be examined and torn apart and figure out all the right answers. God is a being who invites us into relationship. There's a being that if we believe this this God is good, we can trust and get to know in, in a deep and meaningful relationship. There is truth to discover in scripture, and we should do that. There is also a God to talk to and hear from, a God to be in relationship with. (laughs) The God of the universe, that all-powerful, all-knowing, made creation God. Thank you, sir. Uh, He invites us to be in relationship with him. And that's absolutely astounding. And I think if we're around church too long, we lose how astounding that is. God invites us to be in relationship with him. He wants us to get to know his heart, not just know about him or know some cool facts, but really know him, to learn the pattern of his heart. And and then once we have uh, learned the pattern, uh, this uh, story keeps coming to mind for me that I read recently from an author named Henry Nowen uh, in a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, which was recommended to me by like 16 people before I finally read it. So I will be one to recommend it to you. It is a very good book, The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nowen. And in there, he tells what initially feels like a very sappy story about how we are called as Christians, um, and especially uh, those of us who speak into other people's lives in any way. He said, what God invites us to do is to uh, come and lean against his chest and listen to the beat of his heart and tell other people what we hear. I think there's a beautiful picture of what God invites us into, to come and be at rest and hear the beat of his heart and then tell other people what we hear. We need to get to know God's heart his motivations, his drives, his loves, what causes him to love and feel loved. And then we go and pattern our lives after that. And so 
if we're going to be people with a heart like God's, if we're gonna pattern our lives after God's heart, we not only need to know God's heart and know that pattern, but then we have to have dedication to the pattern. We have to dedicate ourselves to following that pattern. In the same way that if you think about somebody that you really, really respect, a mentor or a parent, uh, I have uh, a friend and mentor who's a few years ahead of me in his career, who's a few years ahead of me in parenting his girls. And so uh, I look at him and go, okay, Sometimes I just go, you have been where I am. What do I do in this situation? And if I'm actually going to ask and I'm actually gonna find out how he would react and what he's motivated by and how he would love in this situation, then when he says, this is what you should do, I I, I should then go and do that. How much more so with a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good if I want to pattern my life after him, after, pattern my heart after his, then I'm going to dedicate myself to, to that pattern. God says, here is how you build a life that's a thriving, good life where you have a good impact on the people around you. I then am going to dedicate myself to following that pattern. And another word for that is obedience. It's just another way to say obedience. I'm going to be obedient to what God's laid out for me, how God says a good heart is crafted and made and molded and and is lived out. Uh, It's interesting to me, um, and maybe this isn't interesting to anybody else, but I hope so. In the uh, Acts verse that I quoted, where Paul is is saying that David is a man after God's own heart. He's actually referencing a verse in 1 Samuel that's before we're going to dive in where Samuel is talking to King Saul and says, hey, God's gonna move you out of the way. And he is going to find a man who is after his own heart, a man who has a heart like his. And when Paul recounts it, he doesn't put it before Samuel has found David. He actually uh, quotes it as if it's after, where where God said, I have found David and he is a man after my own heart. And then Paul adds this, this little thing at the end. He says, he will do everything I want him to do. In other words, David is going to be obedient. And, and even though this is not in the quotation from the Old Testament, I don't, I don't think this is wrong. I, I think Paul is continuing to teach here as he does so much in the New Testament. The obedience is going to be part of this, dedication to the pattern. We're going to know the heart of God. We're going to be dedicated to following that pattern. We're going to be obedient. Not that we're going to somehow... Uh, create a bunch of checkboxes, not that we're somehow going to uh, earn God's favor. Again, God is, is not a, a book or formula to be manipulated. This is a relationship to engage in and then to pattern ourselves after. So uh, let's dive into David's story in 1 Samuel. And I wanted to cover the how do we pattern ourselves after God and after his heart first, because that's not going to be in the things that we read. As we read David's story, we can see these things show up in his life, his obedience, his getting to know God. If you read the Psalms that he wrote, it is all over the place. Him crying out to God, him talking about the truth of who God is, what he has learned, um, sharing his anger and some, frankly, really terrible theology in places about uh, what he wants God to do and what he thinks God should do or is doing. As God pours out his heart in this very personal, or as David pours out his heart in this very personal relationship uh, with God, with God, we get to see that he is getting to know God's heart and he is dedicating himself to obedience over and over again. I then wanna look at this story and how does this play out in David's life? 
What will it look like if we have a heart like God's? How will that uh, engage our relationships and our decisions? And I think it is easiest to see in David's relationship with Saul. So we're gonna pick it up right after or fairly soon after David has killed Goliath and the Israelites have stormed the Philistine army uh, that Goliath was the, the big fighter for and, and they've won their battles and they're coming back and they're having their, their victory parade. So that's where we pick this up in 1 Samuel 18, verse six. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, Goliath, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. And this was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his 10,000s. So they came out to meet Saul. And they're singing Saul's praises, but even more so singing David's. Verse eight says, this made Saul very angry. What's this? He said, they credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. That's called foreshadowing. Okay, so <clears throat> from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand and suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. So, okay, so make sure we capture the picture. Saul is getting jealous of David. Uh, he's going a little crazy. Uh, David is there playing his Yanni or Kenny G or whatever he's playing on the harp, just trying to keep everybody calm, right? We're just trying to, to, you know, calm the raving madman on the other side of the room. And Saul has a spear in his hand and he suddenly flings it at David. And it says he actually did this twice. Uh, I read this uh, book recently, uh, A Tale of Three Kings by a guy named Gene Edwards. Uh, this book was uh, given to me by uh, Pastor Jesse um, and uh, it's, it's not a Christmas book. It's not about those three kings. This is uh, about uh, Saul and David and David's son, Absalom, and how they interact with each other. Um, and it's a, a fascinating read. Um, I'm not sure I fully agree with, with every bit of theology in it, um, but it's, it's a fascinating read um, and, and a really good story. And he asks a question in here that I hadn't paused to think about in, in this story. So uh, we're going to take a pause while I take a drink of water to, to think about this question. What are you supposed to do with a spear that's been thrown at you? What do you do when you're sitting there playing your Kenny G and a, a spear goes flying past your head and sticks in the wall just past you? What are you supposed to do with it? You're supposed to pick it up and throw it back. <laughs> or at the very least, pick it up and be ready to defend yourself. Saul did this twice. And, and Gene Edwards in the book says, doesn't it seem weird that David doesn't know what to do with a spear that's been thrown at him? 
Or at least he doesn't seem to know because he doesn't do what we would expect a mighty warrior to do. Hang on to that thought. So Saul uh, has thrown two spears at David. And we actually, as we continue reading, he does it a third time. And David apparently uh, gets tired of target practice. And so uh, he, which by the way, when I read through this story this week, it made me think of uh, the bad guys in movies who they get off like a thousand gunshots and none of them hit any of the good guys. And Bruce Willis comes like cartwheeling through and shoots one shot and it kills three people. And I don't know how any of that works, but, but it felt like that. Like for a mighty warrior, Saul was not very good with his spear aim. Uh, I don't know if it was the crazies he was undergoing or what, but he missed a lot. Anyway, so David gets tired of being target practice, and he decides that he is going to run away. And he does so with the help of Saul's own children, actually. Saul's eldest, Jonathan, who is supposed to be next in line for the throne, doesn't really want it, uh, has some serious father issues, um, which... If your father acts this way, that seems understandable. And he really wants David to be king. He and David become best friends. And he's like, I want, I want this for you. How can I help? And then um, Saul's daughter, uh, Michal, I'm not sure I'm saying that right at all, uh, but Michal, who actually is David's wife, um, uh, also, so Jonathan and, and there's probably a in there somewhere, Michal, uh, uh, they, they help him uh, escape. And so, he uh, disappears uh, out into uh, the, the wilderness and, and starts uh, hiding in caves. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit to uh, 1 Samuel 22, if I can get my Bible to turn there correctly, because of course it won't now. Uh, starting in verse 1, so David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. The disenfranchised, the disconnected, the discontented starts gathering, which, by the way, sounds a whole lot like another king that we will read about later named Jesus. The discontented and disenfranchised start gathering, and he suddenly has 400 men. Now, this is going to make it significantly harder to hide in a cave. There's now 400 of you. Okay, now, so David heads further out into the wilderness where he finds something called sheepfolds, and he would know these were out there. He's been a shepherd. And the sheepfolds were caves in the side of the hills that looked like a normal cave when you first stepped into it, like from the outside, looks like a normal cave. But as you go in and keep going, in the back end of this cave is a giant open area where shepherds could, then sometimes they were naturally formed, sometimes they got a little help, some carved out, whatever. And where shepherds could, as they're coming through a valley or ravine in inclement weather, or the weather is just too hot, they can get their sheep out of, the, the weather and into this cave until the weather passes or cools or whatever. And, and they can kind of have their space at the front of the cave, but the sheep can gather in, in the back. Okay, there's kind of a, a rock pasture or something uh, in, in the back. And that does become significant in a second. Uh, specifically, uh, it's very helpful to David because now instead of him and his 400 guys hiding scrunched in like 40 caves, now they can hide in two or three uh, and kind of fit themselves into these a sheepfold 
areas, okay? So he heads further out and uh, Saul decides to give chase. So moving to 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse two. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats, okay? David has 400 disenfranchised, discontented people. Saul has 3,000 elite troops. Stage is set. Verse three, at the place where the road passes from sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Okay, pause for a couple of things. One, we know that when you go from a really bright space into a dark space, it's really hard to see, right? As opposed to people who have been in that space for a while who can see you just fine. Uh, This is the cause of some of my worst youth ministry memories as kids would jump out and scare the tar out of me. But so you walk in and you can't see anything, but the people in there can see you just fine, particularly when the light is right behind you, right? So Saul walks into this cave. Uh, He doesn't know it's a sheepfold and he doesn't know that there are people back there, but they are very aware of who he is and can see everything he's doing. So let's just take a second to talk about what he's doing. Uh, The New Living Translation politely translates it as he is going in to relieve himself. Now, there are actually two options here. There are two two options, two options um, for what's happening here. One, uh, and, and scholars are really, really split on what's happening here. So one is that he may be going in to take a nap. We know that, and I guess I should explain the, the backgrounding of the wording. The wording here is actually uh, an idiom of some sort that it says Saul went into the cave to cover his feet. It shows up only one other time in, in scripture in the book of Judges. And so scholars are divided on what this means. It could mean that he simply went in to sleep. And, and that would make sense uh, with some of the stuff that we read going further. That, that he went in to take a nap. And if you think about uh, men in robes and you're lying down and some things could get exposed, so you cover your feet to make sure that nothing is seen by other people, okay? So that could be what the idiom means. The other thing it could mean um, which we're pretty sure is what it means in the verse in Judges, where it shows up elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, is, is that he's going number two. That's what he's doing in there. Uh, he, is, he is relieving himself. I don't know which one it is. Either way, Saul is in a very, let's call it vulnerable position. Very vulnerable position. He has no idea that there are people in the cave They know he's there, they know who he is, and they can see, for better or worse, everything that he is doing, okay? Picking it up from there. Maybe picking it up was the wrong phrase. Anyway, okay, we're (laughs) just gonna keep moving. Sorry, had to. All right, verse four. Sorry, pulling it together. Okay, verse four. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly Put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's 
robe. This is one of the verses where it makes people uh, think that maybe he was just sleeping because that's maybe the most logical for how David could crawl up and, and cut off a piece of his robe without him noticing. Then again, maybe he took off his outer robe and hung it just to, or tossed it over there just to keep everything cleaner. Okay, anyway, he cuts off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then, verse five, David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. I don't understand. Like when we pray for things, (laughs) we're looking for any sign of an obvious answer which is what David's men are telling him. Like, look, I don't know what you've been praying for, but we've been praying for an end to this thing. We've been praying for you to be king. We've been praying for Saul to get out of the way. And here God has given him to you. He is vulnerable in some way, easy prey. You can get him here. And something about what David knows about God's heart, something about What David has developed in patterning his heart after God says, no, this is not actually an answer to prayer. This is not actually the right moment. And it blows me away. If I'm in David's shoes, this sure looks like an answered prayer to me. Now, I don't know if I could then walk up and kill Saul because I've never killed anybody before and I don't know if I'm capable. That is not David's issue. He has killed plenty before killing another, and certainly the person who is making his life miserable should not be that difficult. And yet he is aware of something in his heart and in the heart of God that says, no, this is not it. Something in how he has gotten to know God says, yeah, this, this, is, not, this is not the time. So the story continues. The end of verse seven. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the King. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes, it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the King. He is the Lord's anointed one. I mean, David is the Lord's anointed one and he knows it. There's something about the sacredness of who Saul is and what God has, the mantle God has placed on him that that David says, no, I can't. Verse 11, look, my father, what I have in my hand, it's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. In other words, David is saying, I am choosing to be good, to reflect the good heart of God. So what do we learn from David about what it looks like to live a life where our heart is patterned after God? What things are going to be true of us and show up in our lives? I think the first one is that we value the sacred. We value the sacred. And and when I use this word sacred, I'm using it very intentionally. 
And uh, perhaps a little broadly, we, we want to value the sacred. We want to value the opportunities that God gives us. The opportunities to make a difference. The opportunities to do good for somebody else. The opportunities to love someone or to tell them about him. We want to cherish and value those opportunities. We want to cherish and value the people around us because they are made in the image of God. Not just the ones that we like being around, not just the ones that agree with us or make us feel good. We're supposed to value the sacred, all those who are made in the image of God. We should value the person in the mirror because that person is made in the image of God. We should value the opportunity God gives us to be in relationship with him, to talk to him, to hear from him, that God would open himself to us in that way and allow us to be in relationship. We should, we should value the sacredness of that. We should value the times and places that we have set aside for entering into relationship with God and relationship with others made in the image of God. We should value the sacred. Second thing I think we learn from David is that we don't throw spears back. We don't throw spears back. That if our heart is patterned after the heart of God, this is not a part of it. And it is so, so tempting. When that person online says something about you or the people you like, when that person in your home says something that just cuts you under. When that weird uncle at Thanksgiving says the thing that makes the whole room awkward, we want to pick up the spear that has been thrown and throw it back. Oh yeah, well you, we don't throw spears back. Jesus uh, said it this way in Matthew chapter five, verse 39. He said, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. And we have spent a lot of time in the last 2,000 years trying to make Jesus's words mean something else. Trying to make it so that we can go, that's not really what he meant. And if you look at the um, original language um, where it says, uh, turn the other cheek, um, it actually says, uh, turn the other cheek. <laughs> there's, there's no hidden message or meaning here. Now, I do want to be clear that I am not talking about abusive situations and relationships. David ran away, and that was the good God-approved uh, thing to do. David got out of there. But for most of us, when we get slapped we want to slap back. When we have a spear thrown at us, we want to pick it up and hurl it back with all the force we can muster. When somebody hurts us, we want to make sure they hurt. When we are patterning our hearts after God's heart as revealed in Jesus, we don't throw the spear back. We turn the other cheek. And the third thing I think we learn uh, from David is to be patient. The part of patterning our heart after God's heart, to have a heart like God's, is to be patient. 
David did not push the situation. He waited for God to act. And I don't know how he knew in that cave, in that sheepfold, that, that this was not the moment. But he knew, and he didn't push it, and he didn't rush it. He waited for God's timing. God does not get impatient with us, with you, with me, with humanity. Uh, there's a, a verse near the end of the New Testament where they're talking about uh, the controversy of Jesus coming back because Jesus, by that point, has uh, died on the cross. He's been resurrected from the dead, and he has promised he will return. And there are a few decades later going, where is he? He must not be coming. Maybe this story isn't true. And the teacher in the New Testament says, God is surely not being slow. He's being patient with us. God is exceedingly patient and described as patient throughout Scripture uh, being patient, being slow to anger, uh, the, the good King James uh, word for patient, long-suffering. God's described that way over and over. He is so patient with us. And, and God's been uh, teaching me recently uh, about his patience and about some uh, misconceptions that I have had about God that, that I didn't even really realize until the last few weeks um, I've, I've had. And, and God kind of uh, pointed out to me and is dealt is is dealing with. Um, I had this picture that that when I was not growing, when I was wandering off the path, that it was just exceedingly frustrating to God. And that even when I grew, even when I took that step of faith or step of maturity, and I grew in some way, that God would look at me and go. What took you so long? Like I, I wrote down in here how to make it happen. I told you you needed to do it. I put people around you who told you this is the way you need to go. What took you so long? And what I'm learning about God is that God is not a what took you so long God. That when we need to grow, God is excited for us and the growth that we're going to get to experience and the goodness we're going to get to step into. And when we refuse or we wander away, it is sad for God, but not because he is so disappointed in us and our choices, but because he's sad for us that we're missing out on the good and the blessings that he has for us if we would step into the moments of growth. And that when we do take that step and we step in faith and we step into maturity, God is not going, what took you so long? God is sitting there saying, I am so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're getting to experience this joy. I'm so delighted for you. God is patient. He's not saying what's taking so long. He is overjoyed at the idea that we get to grow and that he gets to watch it happen and he gets to walk with us as we do. Okay, I wanna pause on our list for just a second before I get to the last two real quick. And I wanna ask us to think back, maybe close your eyes and think back, and I apologize for being a downer, but I want you to think of a moment that you regret. Something that you did or were part of that you wish you hadn't done or been a part of, something you regret. And as you think about that moment or season that you regret, 
how would that situation have been changed if you had valued the sacred more? If you had refused to throw the spear back? If you had simply been patient? Now, I don't know that this applies to every one of our regrets, but I think for most of us, we can see that if we had simply valued them more, valued the opportunity more, if we had refused to try to take revenge, if we had simply been patient because God was doing something that we didn't want to wait for, that that regret wouldn't be there. Now, we can't do anything to change what is past, and God's grace covers all of it. And I want to be really clear about that if we're going to go to this point. God's grace covers it so well. But we can learn from what did or did not go well before to look around and say, okay, how do I live with fewer regrets? How do I value the sacred in my life and relationships today? How do I choose to let the spears just lie there? How do I choose to be more patient with what God may be up to? And look at the trajectory of our life to look forward and go, okay, (laughs) as I value the sacred, as I refuse revenge and let the spear sit there, as I am more patient with others and myself and with God, how does that increase and grow the trajectory of my life and my relationships moving forward? We value the sacred. We don't throw spears back and we choose to be patient as we pattern our hearts after God. A couple more quick things that I think show up in David's life that I wanna make sure we touch on because it patterns our hearts after God. Uh, One is there does come a day, the very end of uh, the book of 1 Samuel, where Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle. And so 2 Samuel opens with a messenger bringing this news to David. And he is so excited. David, guess what? Saul is dead and Jonathan is dead. The two who are in the way of you being on the throne are gone. It is yours now. You get to be king. And the messenger is so excited, he actually inserts himself in this story. Even though he wasn't anywhere near the story and and nobody actually killed Saul, he fell on his own sword. He says, I killed Saul for you, David. Aren't you so happy with me? Uh, And David actually has him killed. He's like, actually, you were not patient and you did not wait for God to act. Um, And so the, the guy's bragging and lying totally backfired on him. But this still should be a moment of incredible celebration for David and for his guys. That Saul is dead and Jonathan is dead. David is gonna take the throne. The day we've been waiting for is here. It is time to throw a party. And David goes off and he weeps and he mourns. And I think part of how we pattern our hearts after God is we mourn deeply. And I don't know if we think of God doing this enough, but when the sacred is violated, when death and desecration, when division destroys what God loves, harms those he loves, breaks up the things that he is building. It breaks God's heart. And we read over and over in scripture of God being heartbroken, of allowing himself to mourn deeply the brokenness of this world. And David was actually exceptionally good at this. 
Again, you read through the Psalms and you see his mourning and lamenting over and over. That as things happened that broke his heart, that were frustrating, that were difficult, he cries out to God and he mourns them deeply. And the chances are something happened to you this week that hurt. It may not have been huge. And if not this week, then this month. And if not this month, certainly in the last 18 months or so, something has happened to you that has hurt. And it is so tempting and uh, so very modern of us to say, no, I'm going to pull up myself by my own bootstraps and I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to let that thing go and it can't touch me. But the truth is it has touched you. That's why it hurt. (laughs) So we should take the time to mourn it as deeply as is appropriate. Somebody cut you off in the aisle at the grocery store. Okay, probably a small amount of mourning. Maybe necessary, maybe it really bothered you. Take the time to process it. Mourn it as deeply as you need to. A friend of 40 years said something that cut you to your core and has maybe fractured your relationship for seemingly ever. That's worth mourning. That's worth actually taking in and processing and and crying over as necessary and taking time, however much time is needed to mourn that. We want to mourn for an appropriate amount of time. Don't declare a month of mourning for the grocery store incident, but mourn deeply as you need to. On the flip side, a few chapters later in 2 Samuel, uh, David and has become king and his armies go and they bring back this sacred object, the Ark of the Covenant that uh, the Philistines had stolen. And as they bring it back, they throw a huge parade and they're celebrating as they march it through town. And David is celebrating so much and having so much fun dancing at the front of this parade that his wife is like embarrassed for him and, and embarrassed for her. And she's doing the whole like, stop, just tone it down. Some of y'all husbands have gotten that before. Maybe you're on a football game or something. Just tone it down. Okay, so he, he gets the tone it down thing and And he goes, I can't, I can't. Because this thing that is so valuable to God has been returned to his people and we have to celebrate. He celebrates fully. He mourns deeply, but he also celebrates fully dancing in the streets. People thought he was crazy. He's celebrating so fully. And when the sacred is cherished, and the broken are healed and relationships are restored, all of heaven celebrates. When God set up the Israelite society, he set up festivals of celebration that would go weeks at a time. God loves a good celebration. We don't need to just say, oh, that was a great day today. Oh, but I have that meeting tomorrow. No, like celebrate that it was a great day and celebrate it fully That's okay. A moment in your day is an exceptional moment. Hold that out and celebrate it. As we pattern our hearts after God's heart, we should mourn deeply and we should celebrate fully. Okay. Saul was David's greatest enemy. Saul was literally trying to take his life. So here's my question for you, and please don't say anything out loud, or this is going to get really awkward. Who in your life does it feel like they are against you? Who in your life does it feel like they are against you? 
or they are taking something from you, your freedom, your safety, your dignity. Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Who in your life seems to be the enemy? And another way of asking that question is who in your life do you need to love with a heart like God's? Because this is what David did. Because this is what we see God do. Even though we have turned against him, even though we have hurt and devalued the things that he loves, the sacred things, God's love is still true for us. Again, maybe you know them, maybe you don't, but it just feels like they are against you in some way. Rather than thinking about who is against you, what if this is the question we ask? Who in your life do you need to love with a heart like God's? I don't want to quite leave it here this morning um, lest we decide that we just need to work harder to make our hearts more like David's and that will solve everything in our lives. I, I need to finish David's story really quick. Uh, well, not finish David's story. I need to tell one more story on David. Um, David did become king. He does win all these battles as a general in the war. And uh, he decides one day as his troops are going out to battle that he has done enough um, and that he'd like a break from this particular campaign so he's gonna stay back at the palace while they all go out and fight. Uh, he's supposed to be out there with them. That's what he's supposed to do, but he's, he's just gonna take this one easy. And he decides to go for a walk one day around the roof of his palace, stretch his legs, get some sunshine. Uh, and while he's out there, he looks uh, over and at some nearby house sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And he decides that he wants her. And since he's the king, he decides he will have her. And he has her fetched and he sleeps with her. He has her, he gets what he wants. And he gets her pregnant. And now he's feeling uh, very stuck, um, very trapped, and probably a little ashamed. So he decides he's going to fix this situation. He's going to bring Bathsheba's husband back from the war where he's been fighting like he's supposed to be, uh, Uriah. And he says, why don't you come home and why don't you sleep with, his, with your wife? And, and Uriah refuses because his brothers out on the, the field of battle don't get to. So why should he get to come home and sleep with his wife? So that didn't work. David was hoping that, that maybe people would believe it was Uriah's baby, uh, but that, that doesn't work. So instead, he sends Uriah back out into the war and he puts him on the front lines and he tells his commander, hey, uh, have the front lines charge in to the enemy and tell everybody that you are going to, at the very last minute, pull back. Tell everybody except Uriah. And so the front lines charge into the enemy uh, and as they hit the enemy, everybody pulls back except Uriah and he is slaughtered. And now David the man who goes down in history as having a heart like God's has committed adultery and deception and murder. Even as David tried so hard to pattern his heart after God's, the sin that had taken root in the core of every human heart, the ways that we hurt ourselves and hurt others, leapt out and some of that is because he got lazy and stopped focusing on dedicating his heart to the pattern. 
And some of that is because that sin disease has affected every heart, including ours. Uh, A prophet named Jeremiah coming after David, but not talking about David particularly, just all of us, says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? David tried so hard to pattern his life after God's, but there was a core of his heart that was desperately wicked and it came out in terrible, brutal ways. And God knows this. God is aware of the sin disease that has infected every heart. So another prophet named Ezekiel said it this way in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is God's promise. He said, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. We are all in need of a new heart. We all need a new heart. So the question is, how does God go about giving us a new heart? That is where we will pick it up next week. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes up. Father God, we thank you for your grace, for all the ways that our wickedness creeps out. Thank you that your grace covers our sin and our regrets, that through Jesus' death on the cross, through you being willing to give up everything, no matter what it costs you, to meet our deepest needs for forgiveness, deepest needs to be loved, to be at peace, that we can have those needs met, that you give us a new heart and a new spirit. God, would you pull us in deeper into relationship with you this week, that we might hear your heartbeat, that we might know what drives your heart, what motivates you, what pours love in and out of you, and then we would be able to go and do likewise. Love those around us with your love, reflecting your heart. How would you teach us how to be more like you? How to have more of your character and love? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.